the California Attorney General's got a TikTok. He's kind of a silver uh, fox. Ooh. I love that. Hell yeah, Daddy. Judiciate me. Hello, and welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we commit petty crimes across the galaxy, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the cosmic criminal, Mike Thompson. <laughs> Go commit a petty crime, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the boss of me. <laughs> Hello. Well, the purpose of this podcast is to, oh, hi, Mike, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. Just, you know, chaotic is normal. It's uh, just you know. your normal brand of Jessica rolling in and everything just gets a little wilder. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we don't know anything about chaos in this house. <laughs> Well, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Now, if you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it would be a huge help if you'd rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps with discoverability. Now, before we get started on our episode here, which I'm pretty excited about. We are going to be talking about the Stainless Steel Rat comics, and we'll be talking about how they started off. We'll be talking about their creator and other bits and pieces of information that we might have dug up about this franchise. But before we get on to that, Mike, what is one cool thing you have read or watched recently? Before I talk about one cool thing that I've read or watched recently, I do need to make a quick note. Uh, in the last full-length episode that we did, I mentioned that our next episode was going to be our interview with, with Fabian Nicieza. That is actually dropping in two weeks from now. We recorded everything kind of out of order, and I got a little confused. So sorry about that. If you were coming in hoping to listen to that interview, it's still happening. It's already in the can. I got the order confused, so apologies to anyone who is mad about that i guess listen we got too excited you're stuck with just us this week sorry about it question mark no i'm not we're awesome (laughs) (laughs) mike's all apologizing and i'm like you get what you get motherfuckers hang on tight (laughs) we're goddamn delightful (laughs) we are mike's all trying to play it off like we're not the fucking stars of this motherfucking show mike it's our show (laughs) I know. We're allowed to be here. (laughs) I know. I'm still amazed that people want to listen to us, but, you know, I'll take it. I don't know. How many are bots? Please, someone tell us how many of you are bots. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Elon's just going to nuke our followers. It'll be great. Um, Anyway. Wow, the credit you're giving us saying that Elon knows who we are. That man is so weirdly petty, and he loves going after, like, little people who call him out. It's so dumb. Anyway, one cool thing that I've read or watched. I am reading Jenny Zero by Dave Dwanch, and we met Dwanch at East Bay Comic Con a couple of weeks ago, and he was just the nicest dude. So we're we're hoping to have him on at some point, but I bought his Jenny Zero books, and I'm halfway through the first volume. It's titled In His Shadow. It was published by Dark Horse in 2022 and written by Dave Dwanch and Brockton McKinney, lettered by Dwanch, illustrated by Magenta King, inked by Megan Huang, and damn. The story is set in a world where Japan and its action science police have been battling kaiju for decades, and our main character, Jenny Zero, is the daughter of Japan's iconic superhero slash monster slayer, Mega Commander Zero but she's washed out of the service. So she's basically living in exile with her hotel heiress best friend, Dana Sheraton in Los Angeles. So she's gone from being this kaiju killer to one of those celebrities who's more famous for partying than anything else. And the book opens up with her receiving word that the kaiju are starting to migrate away from Japan and they're going to make landfall in her neck of the woods like tomorrow. 
So the action science police kind of brings her her old gear and it's sort of clandestine. They have this family friend who's running things and he tells her, you need to do this because if you don't, America is and America isn't prepared for this and they're going to respond how they always do and just use bombs. And it's kind of that old adage of like, you know, they're, they're using a sledgehammer when you need a scalpel. So she goes to fight the monster. Things go sideways. And the first issue ends with her suddenly growing to the size of a kaiju herself. And from there, we start learning her backstory, the world's backstory. And it's, it's all really good. Like the characters are wonderful. I love the relationship between Jenny and her friend, Dana Magenta King's art is really beautiful. It's got this, unique style that feels like a blend of watercolors and anime and i'm about halfway through the trade right now but i'm really enamored with this like dwanch also gave us his comic about brian fuller called mind palace and sarah's read that one and has been raving about it all week so i'm gonna have to read that next that's so cool yeah yeah he was super nice. I bought some of his stuff too, so I'm excited yeah, to delve into the We wound into up chatting with him for like 20 minutes. It was like he yeah. was just a cool dude and really like he and I had a lot of kind of like weird similarities with our careers and just awesome. So I've reached out to him because he had expressed an interest in coming on our show and hopefully we get him on sooner rather than later. Yeah, no, that would be amazing. He was awesome. But yeah, what about you? What are you uh, bringing to the table today? Well, we all know that I love the comics artist and writer sarah anderson oh yes and so i purchased recently her cryptid club which i'm holding up in front of me so mike can see (laughs) dude the cover glows in the dark there's little fresno crawlers on it well now i have to buy this book (laughs) and it's it's the freaking cutest thing in the world. And it's, you know, it's her her normal style of strip art where mm-hmm. each page is a different kind of scenario or a different little kind of, you know, slice of life situation. But they're cryptids. So, you know, right off the bat, you know, it's like the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot are sitting together and... Bigfoot's like, oh, they named me something. What did they name me? Hopefully it doesn't have anything to do with something I'm deeply insecure about. <laughs> and the Loch Ness Monster's like, kind of like doing that, oh, shit. That's great. <laughs> so, I mean, starting off strong. Yeah, it was, it's so, she would love it. She absolutely would love it. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah's someone who really enjoys, like, she's not like a, a cryptid hunter or anything like that, but she enjoys cryptid stuff. So, yeah. Well, yeah, because they're fun. And and Sarah Anderson makes them, of course, adorable. You know, so yeah. she's got Fresno crawlers wearing, you know, red high heels in one of them. And <laughs> just it, yeah. good stuff. Good stuff. So I would definitely recommend it. She did one about like a vampire and a werewolf dating. Yes, right? That was a, that's yeah. how I found her first called. Fa- Actually, I found her through Sarah Scribbles that I had seen online. Yeah. But she did one, yeah, called Fangs, which was about a vampire and a, and a werewolf who get together. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, she's good. She's she's done like a lot of really good web comics over the years, too. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, what do you say we move on to our main topic? Yeah, I'm down with this. All right. Well, we are moving on to our main topic, which is the stainless steel rat. And we're going to start with my motivation for this episode, because this was yet another solid find from Outer Plains' moving sale back this last summer. And it was an entire set I got for a total of $3. Was that one that I was there for? I feel like I was. Yeah, I think you did point it out. Yeah, I had picked okay. it up and went, ah. Uh? <laughs> And it's by Eagle Comics, and I hadn't I hadn't heard of that before. I mean, I I don't know that much about like you know. We've talked about Eagle. Brands. We actually have. Oh, that's be- right. No wonder it sounded slightly. Judge familiar. Dredd. That's what it was. Well, and there's a Judge Dredd advertisement on the back of it, so yeah. I really should have put the pieces together. But you know, did I? No. If I remember right, Eagle Comics was founded by some guy out of Britain, and was basically kind of reprinting. British comics for American audiences. Oh, that tracks. I think their first book was Judge Dredd. And then they started bringing other ones over. Nice. But I, but I can't remember now. Like, I just, yeah. We, like, but we talked about this 
almost two years ago. It was for the Judge Dredd episode, oh, which was, I think. I mean, yeah, two years ago. I'm never going to remember any of this stuff. <laughs> no, time's a flat circle, man. It, I think that's episode 10, give or take. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. Well, the, I yeah. was going to say, I was thinking back, but I, I'm not sure. Someone, someone correct us. Someone interact yeah. with us. <laughs> <laughs> so for this episode, I also went down another rabbit hole of media. So I'll, I'll get into that a bit later, too. But Mike, before we actually delve in, had you ever heard of this property, either in comics or in other forms? Yeah, I had, actually. I like Ooh. That's the reason I spotted it, where when you showed that to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I know that. My first job was working at my town library. Of course it was. Yeah, I mean, you know, checked out. <laughs> but I was averaging like about a book a day during the year and change that I worked there. And basically people would return stuff and I go, oh, that looks good. And then I set it aside to read before I put it back on the shelf. So someone returned the stainless steel rat sings the blues and it had like this really funny, weird cover. So I had to read it. And it was, you know, it was pretty fun. It fit right into that bubblegum sci-fi genre that I really like. And then I started looking for other books in the same series. And so I picked up Stainless Steel Rat Gets Drafted. And then I read Stainless Steel Rat is Born. So, like, I read all of these books in the wrong order. But they're they're all pretty standalone. Like, you don't need to have, like, a deep knowledge of the character to, to really just pick one up and get into it. You truly don't. And it turns out. And I learned this after the fact. These books were prequels that were written in the 80s and 90s. And the original novels were written like way earlier. But they're really fun. I think Stainless Steel Rat Gets Drafted was my favorite. But I never read any of the other books that are in the series. And I know there's been books both before and since these were written. And I had no idea there was a comic until you found it. So this was a real treat. Oh, I'm so glad. I am so glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, the Stainless Steel Rat series was written by Harry Harrison. The book series was. And he was born Henry Maxwell Dempsey in Stamford, Connecticut on March 12, 1925, just to kind of give you the era of his life. Okay. His father changed his name to Harrison on his birth certificate, which Harrison didn't actually find out until he was around 30. But he did initially have Dempsey on there. That's so weird. Like, also, I love that his father changed his name to something alliterative. That's really funny. Yeah. And his father was, I think, first or second generation Irish. And so Mm. he was really trying to, I think, get away from that identity for his son. Well, especially during the era of the early 1900s, because Uh was that like around the time of the potato famine or was that earlier? Uh, I think it was slightly earlier, but they were having yeah. a lot of issues with like racism against or ethnicism against. Right. Know, it was kind of like we had we had those rolling waves of immigrants coming from Europe and, yeah. and each new one would get just, you know, othered and, and kind of hated. So I know at one point they had the Italians and they were really mm-hmm. hated and then the Irish and then, you know, yeah, <laughs> you got a lot of systemic racism. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Until it's like, oh no, no, no. You you're Irish, but you're white now. It's okay. You're white it's now. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> oh, don't get me started. But <laughs> so while Harry Harrison was best known for the series we're discussing today, The Stainless Steel Rat, he was also known for other sci-fi works, such as his novel Make Room, Make Room, which was published in 1966. And which was the basis for the 1973 film Soylent Green. Ever heard of it? Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Damn, this dude's prolific. Dude, super prolific. The rabbit holes I went down about this gentleman. I am not joking you. So his career making media, however, it did not start with sci-fi prose. In fact, it started somewhere very familiar to our podcast in comics. (laughs) Okay. So after being drafted into the army to fight in World War II and becoming incredibly jaded by the experience, Harrison began his career illustrating comics, the most prevalent of which being sci-fi comics from EC comics, such as Weird Fantasy and Weird Science, working most often with Wally Wood, who would ink over Harrison's penciling. 
Oh man, I wonder if Jake knows Harrison stuff because Jake loves that whole era and that like brand of comics. Yeah, I was looking through my old like because I have some weird fantasy and weird science reprints, and I was looking through some of those to see if I could find them. But Wood pretty much puts his name in the corner of everything, and so anything he's inked over, you probably wouldn't see like anything from Harrison. Yeah, so I'll, and I'll have to really text Jake later anywhere. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Sorry, Jake from Spectales, I should say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, precisely. So Wood and Harrison worked together on other genres outside of sci-fi, including horror and westerns, until they went their separate ways in 1950. Mm. So Harrison's next jump was into the writing of comics. So he was ghostwriting some under uh, house pen names, such as Wade Campfort and Philip St. John, mm. and using the name Felix Boyd and Hank Dempsey to publish other sci-fi novels at that time. He also wrote for syndicated comic strips, writing several stories for the character Rick Random. Hmm. So that's the point when he delved into prose, having his first short story titled Rock Diver, published in the 1951 issue of Worlds Beyond, where he had previously been illustrating. So that was a fun little full circle. Mm -hmm. And at this time, he was also hanging out at the Hydra Club in New York. Where folks such as Isaac Asimov, Judith Merrill, and Theodore Sturgeon were hanging out, you know, among others. Oh, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, just, as you Just do. a casual collection of, like, some prolific authors. Okay. I mean, there's a reason I look like, I, I am wearing, like, what looks like a smoking jacket, everyone. So yeah. I am very much bringing this vibe <laughs> into this recording today. <laughs> Also, Harrison also used these authors as inspiration for some of his work, focusing his work on satire and parodies, taking direct inspiration from Robert A. Heinlein's Starship Troopers to write his own novel, Bill the Galactic Hero, which turned into a series of seven novels that he wrote starting in 1965. So Harrison's drafted army role as a gunsight technician and gunnery trainer also played into his writings, along with his thoughts about that institution. Christopher Priest had the following to say about this aspect of Harrison's writings. Overall, the Army experience vested in him a hatred of the military that was to serve him well as a writer later on. He also had a keen interest in the language Esperanto. What? Advocating, <laughs> yeah, advocating for its greater use in society. And... This is where I went down another little rabbit hole, because I I feel like I had heard of Esperanto before, but like not in any sort of description, like in... in it's like an in artificial not, not in language, right? Like Yeah, so it's... Yeah. Esperanto is... It's an artificial language that they were kind of touting at this time as like an international language that everybody could kind of learn and participate in. And it is right. a really interesting theory, like... You you don't have to know as many words in the language to be able to put things together because of the way that the language is set up in the syntax happens, which is really fascinating. Yeah, it was designed to be like easy to learn, if I remember right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So while Esperanto was declared one of the official languages in a couple of small countries, island nations, mm -hmm. it did end up being taught in schools in China and Hungary. More fun facts about Esperanto while we're at it, since I've, here we are. So China <laughs> has used Esperanto for its daily news on China.org.cn for its internet magazine and huh. for China Radio International since 2001. Also, while we're at it, the Vatican Radio has translations of all its podcasts. Yes, you too can listen to the Vatican podcasts and its websites in Esperanto. Hmm. And we've even used it for some military handbooks here in the U.S. That's so, <laughs> so okay. Yeah. So fun fact, and actually you're probably going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Harrison also sprinkled this language into his own writings, where it shows up in more than one of his titles, including some of the Stainless Steel Rat novels. So hmm. in places where... People are speaking another language and right, it's not English. Sense. It's Esperanto, dude. That's really funny. Isn't it? So you've been reading Esperanto. 
Outside of the novels, there was also a stainless steel rat board game based on the return of the stainless steel rat, and it was available on shelves in 1981. It was a one to two player game with about a 60 minute play time, ages 10 plus. Man, I'm really curious as to what that board game was like. It was like round. Mm. It was a round board game. It was very interesting looking. It offends you. I think things spun. You know, it it seemed like that. It had that kind of vibe. I didn't look too far into it other than its existence and like the look of it. Yeah, there's some really (laughs) fascinating tie-in board games across everything. Someone pointed out Disney had a a Three Little Pigs board game that they put out in like the 1930s and it was tied to one of the animated cartoons I think they did. Oh, no. People forget how board games are a major, especially 50 years and earlier, they were just a huge part of kind of promotional tie-ins. It's it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Now we see things like apps or things being included in apps as advertisement instead. Yeah, or, or kind of those shovelware video games, although those have largely translated to the mobile platform. Because they're just mm, yep. they're so they're so easy to just kind of slap out and you can reskin existing games. Exactly. So Harrison had a long career of sci-fi writing throughout the 90s and early 2010s prior to his passing in 2012. Mm. So he was like 90-ish when he died? Yeah. 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 Had a good run. Sure did. Sure did. Now, for today's topic, the Stainless Steel Rat series. I mentioned earlier that Stainless Steel Rat was first a series of novels but first started as a novelette of the same title, published in a 1957 issue of John W. Campbell's Astounding magazine. This was turned into a full-fledged novel, with the novelette comprising the first part of the original Stainless Steel Rat title, and that was published in 1961. So Harrison ended up writing 12 books in this series, only three of which are going to come into play with our episode today. Right. But those three novels, which I can actually, I'll tell you the names and the publication dates of all the novels, because I thought it was really interesting. So the first one was Stainless Steel Rat, 1961. Second one was Stainless Steel Rat's Revenge, 1970. Mm -hmm. Number three was Stainless Steel Rat Saves the World, which was our second one that we're going to be talking about today. Stainless Steel Rat Wants You was 1978. Stainless Steel Rat for President, 1982. That's going to be our third one that we talk about today. Mm-hmm. Then we have Stainless Steel Rat is Born, 1985, which you said you had read before. Gets Drafted, 1987. Sings mm-hmm. the Blues, 1994. Stainless Steel Visions, 1993. The Stainless Steel Rat Goes to Hell, 1996. Right. Stainless Steel Rat Joins the Circus, 99. Stainless Steel Rat Returns in 2010. And then it looks like The Adventures of the Stainless Steel Rat was probably a compilation kind of a situation. And then you can be the Stainless Steel Rat, which, fun fact, was a... Was it like a choose-your-own-adventure? Yes, it was a choose-your-own-adventure one. (laughs) Yes, I want to read it so bad. That was in 1985. But yeah, the decisions you make affect where the book goes, which I I don't know if you liked those, but I loved those. Oh, I loved them. The Choose Your Own Adventure books. They're coming back, too. Like, Goblin Bros has a whole display of them. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Every kid Mm -hmm. needs to be able to do a read-your-own-adventure. My friend Ib is writing like a, uh, he is working on this major, first of all, Ib is like an incredibly talented writer. I worked with him when I was at Fifth Planet Games, but he is doing a, a, it's basically a choose your own adventure epic fantasy novel, I think. I don't know a lot of the specifics on it, but he talks about it in the discord that I'm in and occasionally we'll show kind of like the decision tree screenshots and it just gives me anxiety attacks. (laughs) No. It's cool to see, but that would probably give me anxiety attacks as well. I agree. So there were also some collected editions, um, a stainless steel trio, which I assume was three of the books, the stainless steel rat omnibus and Mm -hmm. stainless steel rat ebook collection. But again, this is just his prose for the stainless steel series. So the novels were adapted into a black and white comic strip appearing in early issues of 2000 AD mm-hmm. and following the plot from the book Stainless Steel Rat, The Stainless Steel Rat Saves the World and The Stainless Steel Rat for President, of course, like I said. Yeah. And the, so like the way that these were published was it was like six pages a piece, but it was like a weekly magazine on newspaper print, basically. 
Yeah, yeah. So basically what it was, each of the three books was pieced down to like 12 episodes each, and each of those episodes would have been one of those weeklies. Right. Yeah. All of those were printed between 1979 and 1985. They were written by Kevin Gosnell and drawn by Carlos Ascara. And Ascara drew Jim with an appearance modeled on the actor James Coburn. Fun fact. First of all, that makes a lot of sense based on some of my notes. But also, Ascara, he is the artist that created Judge Dredd. And that actually also lines up with some of my thoughts that I had about the art style for the book that we'll talk about later. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. These episodes were later collected, colorized, and reprinted in a six-issue series by Eagle Comics between 1985 and 1986. And of course, this is the series that I found. Yeah, and then I read the trade paperback that was put up by 2080, which also makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So yours was in black and white when we were reading yeah. it, and mine was in color, so... Yeah, yeah, so when we start talking about art, I'll send you uh, some of the panels in color so you can kind of get an idea. Cool. I'm excited about this. So in the research phase of this episode, of course, I ended up listening to the book on tape for all three of the novels. But furthermore, I decided I also needed to listen into book two as well, you know, for thoroughness. <laughs> I was also interested in seeing if there was anything in the other books that moved into the comics for story's sake. I only found a couple of little things where they kind of had to introduce something, but they weren't really worth mentioning. And I know why they did it the way they did it, because they just didn't have the second book to introduce that one little thing they needed. Mm. And it was more like story mechanics of like, we're going to explain how this thing works, but it was explained right. in a different episode. Yeah. I did run out of Audible credits before I could listen to number four, so don't come at me, okay? <laughs> I was not paying full price to go listen to one of those again. I'd already listened to four of them. <laughs> I, meanwhile, did not reread any of the novels. <laughs> like That's I, okay. You very truly didn't need to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sorry. So let's go through the plot of the story. And I really stripped this baby down to brass fucking text. So... Mike, you can throw in some little detail-y business if and when you want to. Sure. And yeah. In the first two issues, we meet Slippery Jim Bolivar, Degrees, a small-time galactic crook, and we learn of his escapades being caught by an agency of reformed crooks called the Special Corps. After being cajoled into joining, he discovers an illegal spaceship is being built on another planet. He disguises himself, kind of? Kind of, yeah. And goes to foil the plan and catch the villain whom he thinks is the president. The president was merely a pawn, however, pointing to another couple named Pepe and his girlfriend Angelina. Now Pepe and Angelina get away <laughs> and begin a wave of killing and terror yeah. with the intergalactic ship that, again, it's illegal for a reason. Yeah, I mean, like, this thing is like, I don't know, it's kind of like the space equivalent of one of those old man-of-war yeah. Warships. The thing is just huge and obliterates anything that crosses its path. Yeah, it's it's wild times for sure. Jim has this whole thing about not killing people, which I do actually really like that about his character. Yeah. His character is always like, I don't kill people. And so Jim hatches a plan. He catches them by parading around as a wealthy man with a very richly laden ship, but his plans are further foiled as Pepe turns out to be yet again a pawn. And Angelina, who is the real criminal, escapes, going right. on a further killing spree, and Jim goes after her. He finds her, but he has a run-in that causes him to be hospitalized, so, like, now he's pissed. His honor's wounded, right? Well, she, like, shoots him, doesn't she? Like in She, like, blasts him, yeah. Yeah. She, like, she, like she basically... aims to kill, for sure. Yeah. And then he basically manages to convince the robot attending to him that he's actually died, right? Yeah. 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 Like, I thought it was pretty funny that the medical droids are basically really <laughs> dumb other than, like, their specific task of, like, doing medical procedures. And so yeah, he uses and the circular logic to, like, no, 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 I died. It's fine. And get them to sign off the on the paperwork. It's the same in the books where he's yeah. constantly, like, tricking robots into doing something different. Like, you could tell he was hanging out with Asimov. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so Jim feels like he has to get into the mind of, I don't know, a person who's not mentally healthy mm -hmm. or 
whatever. And so he gives himself basically what amounts to be a potion that makes him quote unquote crazy, which I don't yeah. like. It makes him like unhinged and angry. And he basically puts himself in that mindset so he can like think like her or whatever. I think it was stupid, but whatever. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. It's a trope that was kind of not uncommon in that era. Yeah, I don't love it. We, we don't yeah. love it. So through another disguise, quote unquote, by the way, when I say disguise, I mean like sometimes he might dye his hair, but he's basically wearing the same <laughs> outfit every time. He looks the exact same. In the books, he's made out to be like, I had this fake face and like I had an extra yeah. nose and like da 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 da, but it's or not an extra nose, but like an extra big nose or something like, yeah. you know. But in here, it's just like very superficial. Oh, it like it barely even registers when you read it in black and white, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, see, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. He has to basically explain every time that he's a new person, like reintroduce himself. And that's the only reason he know we yeah. know he's a new person. Yeah, I was like, all right, sure. You look exactly the same as before, but whatever. <laughs> right. So he finds her again. She's forming an arsenal and through more killing and fighting, including air and land battalions, Jim finally catches her and in a heart to heart finds out that she was not always this beautiful. She was gasp ugly once. And this was revenge for all that pain or something. Yeah. Ugh. So. He gets tranked, and when he wakes up, she's been, like, fixed, but, like, basically lobotomized. To, yeah, because like, the special core got a hold her, of her. like, killer tendency. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole thing is they talk about it earlier with, with, I think, Pepe, where they show that, like, oh, yeah, like, we have this procedure that'll, like, smooth out your sharp edges. But the problem is, is that if you're really evil, <laughs> you get a little smoother than most, and so... Pepe is like trying to to open, I think, like a can of soda or something, and he finally does it, and then he pours it on himself instead of being able to drink it. And it's like, mm, this isn't great, but okay. Yeah. Like, it's like, mm, it's giving me some uncomfortable kind of Victorian medical ethics yes. vibes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I ba- it basically like, oh, good excuse for the doctor not doing a good job here, basically, yeah. is what Pepe felt like. Yeah, and then yeah. with Angelina, she is not lobotomized. She just kind of had her more psychopathic tendencies curbed. So she's still willing to kill and be violent when she needs to be. But at the same time, she doesn't behave that way indiscriminately now. Yeah. It's it, almost like there's a thought blocker before it. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, this is not great, but like, yeah. Clearly, they wanted to make her into kind of an anti-hero character, so okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after that point, Angelina and Jim end the issue basically re-meeting each other for the first time. And Inskip is like, who's one of the, the characters who had kind of brought him onto the special core, was like, well, if they ever team up, we're all fucked, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Which I did like. <laughs> yeah. So issues three and four followed a story about a character named He, who is fucking with time, and yep. it's up to Jim to stop him. And it it's kind of fun because it starts off the first issue with people popping out of existence, and that's mm-hmm. how we start to figure out that time is being messed with. And so Jim's worried that his family's gone. He has a new set of baby twins, and he has to save the world from basically disappearing, the world as he knows it. Yeah, and the way that he manages to stay stable is one of the guys from the Special Corps gives him like kind of a, it's like a portable time stabilizer, and they have a whole explanation about how like every three seconds it re-uploads like your lifetime of memories into your brain, so you're anchored. It's very silly. It feels like something that would have been dreamed up in kind of the 50s. I'm like, yeah, this is fine. This is absolutely (laughs) my jam. And then he basically starts getting bounced through time, so he originally goes to like 1970s America, and yep. then the French Revolution? Yeah, Am I missing yep. one? with Napoleon. Nope. Yeah. And then after that, he has a final confrontation on, like, another world with him, who it turns out was a Martian warlord when was, humanity basically... he, with he. Sorry, yeah, with he. <laughs> yeah, this was my least favorite of the stories. Because it feels much more like kind of just a standard action military story where he's like bouncing through time and he's like, yeah, 
do it like occasionally you get glimpses of it, glimpses of it, like where he's in the 1970s and he like breaks into a bank vault and he's got this kind of moron of a biker who, by the way, I sent you a screenshot of that where they're yeah. showing, you know, the, the American evil biker and he's got a swastika sewn into his back pocket. And I was like, I'm sorry. What? Yep. Yep. Like, like apparently that was just uh that was just what they thought biker gangs in America's looked like. I don't know. Yeah, they definitely, even in the books, they leaned really heavy on some really negative biker gang stereotypes that I wouldn't even classify were like strictly biker gang stereotypes. They were kind of just taking like gang stereotypes. Right. And like yeah, they were just kind of mashing them all together. It. Yeah. Well, you know, and that was that was a big thing was this was the era after I think Easy Rider and so, like, mm. bikers were becoming a whole trope to use, I guess. I don't know. Right. It hadn't quite gone to that point of, like, in the 80s and 90s when all of a sudden you had suburban dads buying their Harleys and going for weekend rides and having, like, the suburban motorcycle clubs. <laughs> right. So, mm. Yeah. But, yeah, it feel, that feels like someone was like, if I had read this now, like, you know, and this has just been put out, I've been like, oh, so someone watched Sons of Anarchy, and then they were like, <laughs> these fuckers aren't evil enough. Let's up that. <laughs> Whatever. Pretty much. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah. So, for the rest of the comic, Angelina pops in. They end up, I don't even remember how. They end up defeating He. It's really not important. Yeah, it doesn't really explain it. She shows up in the French Revolution. Like about two thirds of the way through the story. And she's like, you were the one who popped out of existence and I made it to the special core headquarters and everyone was freaking out. And then they gave me this time stabilizer. And now here I am. And I'm like, there's so many. Okay. Oh, yeah. And then like something pops into existence for him when he needs it. He's like, I could really use such and such. And then he goes back to the time and he's like, oh, shit, I was the one who sent that. I need to send this thing to myself so that the time loop continues and I actually achieve this. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Bill and Ted, like towards the end of the first movie where they're like, oh, yeah, the trash can that like falls on the dad and all that. And it's like, we got to remember to go do that. And like and also like, oh, I forgot my car keys. Well, here they are now. It's like, okay right yeah you know whatever so you know it was it was funny but i mean you know when you think about this being like more of a parody based off of something that was kind of jabbing at this medium as well as you know kind of reveling in it it makes a lot of sense yeah it just it felt like kind of the least fun of the three stories I'll agree. I mean, I didn't even give it a decent enough <laughs> ending in my description here to like tell you what happened to the main villain. So <laughs> he got shot, I think. I think, or mm. he, or he ended up in a time loop or something. I can't remember. He didn't know. That's what it was. Was so he ended up Jim, in a time loop. Jim shot him originally, and then it turned out he had like a robot duplicate, and then yeah. he ends up like he's like, I'm gonna go off and fuck with time some more, and then Jim, I want to say, hurls a potato. And I'm not sure if it was a potato, but it looked like a potato and it's for some reason it's stuck in my head as a potato. So he hurls <laughs> it and he hits the controls right before the dude takes off. And then right, he gets right. and then he gets stuck in like a time loop or winds up somewhere bad. We don't really know. Yeah, um, no. yeah and then it just kind of ends suddenly after that with him, like getting back together with Angelina. And you're like, all right. OK, and then they go and see the baby twins who, by the way, it's been five years. So they're five year olds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sure. Why not? Yeah, right. Exactly. Hey, you didn't have to deal with any diaper changing. Congratulations. Yeah. Issues five and six, the the last two issues, are Jim, Angelina, and the twins. They are off doing their own petty criminal kind of things, and they get looped in again mm-hmm. with the special core. This time to assist in a totalitarian government being paraded as a democracy. So. Jim ends up running against the guy who's been there for like 300 years and he's like taking anti-aging stuff. But he's like, like, it's not going to last forever. Like this guy's getting there and it shows. And they end up rigging an election. He again, he's somebody else in this. He's like supposed to be a native to that country. He he disguises himself as like as a new political candidate for the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's very clear based on like all of the art styles and the names and like the language stuff that they do. It's very clear that this is meant to be a satire of like 
kind of like those banana republic countries that was like a whole thing um yeah well did come out in the 80s yeah this one yeah, yeah. It, it's ve- it's very clearly meant to be like cuba and fidel mm-hmm. like that's what they're going for yeah like, okay exactly like mm, it feels mildly it, racist it was but mm, okay pretty yeah it was pretty heavy-handed it was also really heavy-handed in the book Jim runs against the bad guy in order to rig the election. He actually does rig a lot of the election to put the country, quote unquote, on the right path to democracy. Yeah. Uh, and then once he gets elected, he gets, quote unquote, assassinated, yeah. you know, by the standing leader, they think. Uh, to It's really to maintain the country's right to choose their leader. I, obviously, I'm sure that was the, the jam. It also took him out. He's not actually supposed to be the president. He's just like trying to get out the head haunch. Yeah, he's trying so. to basically destabilize these rigged elections. And then what happens yeah. is the guy that he picked as his like, second-in-command, who is actually a good dude, winds mm-hmm. up taking over. Yeah, and had a good platform to do so because of the assassination, which yeah. was, you know, blood packets. And in the book, they describe it. It was actually Bolivar who did it, his son. he By the way, he named his sons after his first and middle name, James and Bolivar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and his like, sons are like, guy. it's interesting because in certain illustrations, his sons look much younger. They look like kind of teens. And then in other ones, they look like they're in their 20s. Right. It just, it kind of depends. Do we know how old they were supposed to be? Did I miss that? They were supposed to be in their 20s at that point in time, okay. I think. I mean, they were full adults. Because yeah. um, in that book, he was sending them on pretty dangerous missions. And they were having to have the conversations of like, like one of them didn't come home at one point in time. Like he was fine eventually, but like one of them didn't come home and Angelina and Jim had to have this conversation about like, Hey, they're adults and they're allowed to Mm -hmm. make decisions like this and we have to let them. And so it was, yeah, the introspective kind of piece between them definitely showed up a lot more in the books than it did. Of course. Okay, cool. Well, so that's, pretty much that's the lowdown for the plot but i had a few questions for you you know in in reading through these yeah and so i figure we could just talk a little bit about what we read like characters and starting out with what was your overall take on slippery jim like did you find him likable as a character it's interesting because you know i read the later books where i felt like his personality was a little bit more developed and fleshed out Mm. and in these comics he really doesn't feel like much of a character until the final story like yeah he's got some code of ethics and stuff like that like he doesn't like to kill etc etc but he comes across as this cocky jerk who's just too good to really be thwarted for long and who begrudgingly gets forced into these adventures and has to do the right thing but i felt like he was less of a character and more of an archetype for the first two stories and then the third story let me see the character that I remember from the novels I read. And he felt more like a good-natured con man who actually enjoys doing the right thing, even though it's in an underhanded sort of way. It's kind of like gets this thrill from it. That was how the books felt from beginning to end. Like, I, I don't know that the the vibe of the character translated well from mm-hmm. the books generally onto into the comics. And I don't know if that was just that they tried to condense so much into such little space. I think it's because they were sitting there and doing these as like, you know, they, they were basically, it was kind of the, the pulp story format where it's yeah. like, you know, you're just delivering chapters at a time. And so you're not able to really flesh things out. And instead, you have to deliver these short bursts of story with enough action and then leave things on a cliffhanger so you bring people back the next week. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's fine, Mm -hmm. but I feel like we really didn't get to see much of his personality or kind of like, you know, how he's got that roguish charm until the third story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. I'm like, this is fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was my favorite one, too, was the last one. Yeah. Well, on the same vein, what were your feelings about Angelina as a character? Ah, mm, it's kind of the same thing as with Jim. She wasn't really a character until the third volume. Like, she's a femme fatale in the first story. And then I didn't really like how it's like her motivation is that very weird revenge plot. And then also, like, the way that she gets sort of lobotomized at the end is real problematic when you look at it from today's lens at the same time 
if you're looking at it as a story that was written in the 50s, it's kind of like, well, okay, like this is just they would just do this stuff, like especially in science fiction where they would just be like hand waving things away Mm -hmm. to explain very dramatic changes. So I wasn't really wild about any of that, but she's not really present for most of the second story. Though I did enjoy how when she shows up, she's like, yeah, 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 it's time travel, whatever. Everyone at the Special Corps, a bunch of babies for freaking out over this. <laughs> like, I feel like she really came into her own in the third story because she's like the bruiser of the group, which I really loved. Yes. Like, she was routinely holding up like large dudes in military attire. And she's like, no, nah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I love that. I thought she that was, was great. great. Yeah. Yeah. And she definitely acted that way. And then that was definitely giving her so much of the same vibe that she had from the book Mm. because she did have a much bigger play in each of those than really she was given credit for even even the last one i mean she had a lot more that she was doing in the background for you know the intricacies of the rigging of the election yeah and here's the thing is in the books that i read 20 years ago i don't remember her being a presence but that said i remember very little of those books. I just kind of remember the overall vibe. I remember like two or three minor details from each of the novel. Like I remember in Drafted, he's on this planet of pacifist, and I think their currency mm-hmm. is called Wurz. That is like the thing that stands out the most to me. But I don't remember Angelina being a character in these novels, and I could be completely off base. I have forgotten about all sorts of stuff, you know, with other things, CR Sandman episodes. <laughs> with that elf who I was like, oh, I think she shows up later on. No, she's like a big deal. Right, right, exactly. She's a huge deal. <laughs> well, and she kind of pops in and out. And I would assume that like for uh, one that's like, you know, drafted or something that's pretty military army based, he probably went in there alone and she may have shown up kind of tangentially. But like the thing is, is like those books were all meant to be prequels, I think to the oh so novels. it probably was then she probably wasn't there at all then yeah yeah so that's the thing is i don't think she was oh that makes sense but th- that's that's the thing is the novels that i read they are all chronologically set in an earlier time than the original mm. novels and then okay the novels that came out after those three apparently kind of like go back to like the later timeline so like like i said I read everything out of order. Like it was like, I read the novels out of order. It turns out like timeline wise for Jim, I read everything out of order too. It, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it hurts you. <laughs> no. And I mean like they're very enjoyable bubblegum stuff. And it, it's yeah. one of those things where it's like, it's got that kind of like general vibe of like fifties and sixties sci-fi, but it had a little more kind of like fun character development fleshed out that you were starting to see in like the eighties and nineties. So, yeah. 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 Agreed. Well, how did you feel about the whole family of crime thing they have going? I really enjoyed it. Like, (laughs) yeah, I liked how the various attributes got spread out and it was suddenly less like Jim was this badass and capable of screwing up. And he now had a group to lean on. And, And that said, they didn't feel really like a family, more like a crew in the comic. I'll agree. But I think that's more because the author was less focused on character development and more about using the characters to advance the plot. And the amount of space that they had, but makes sense. Yeah, and everything about this made me think about, there's an old adage about how there are two types of writers. There are plotters and pantsers. Yes, yes. And the plotters are the ones who sit there and have everything plotted out. And they're like, all right, we're going to get from point A to point B to point C, and this is how we're going to do it. And the pantser is like, no, I've got this general idea, and then I'm just going to let the writing see where it takes me. And so George R. R. Martin is a prime example of a pantser. I think Robert Jordan, the guy who wrote the the Wheel of Time series, also was very much a pantser because his books would take oh, these yeah. huge, wild tangents. Like he had, I think, like the eighth novel was basically just all side characters doing shit, and everybody got really pissed when that book came out. <laughs> Harrison, on the other hand, feels like a plotter, like it, you know, where he's just like much more focused on taking us on a very calibrated journey. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's not a bad thing. Neither is is better. Neither one is like the perfect thing. It's just kind of one of those things where it's like you you read this and you're like, okay, this was less focused on character development. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Well, there's a lot of time in the chronological kind of space of each of these stories. Which of the character stories would you have wanted to follow during those years, those lost years, if you could? I mean, probably the twins, I guess. Like, I would have liked <laughs> to see the stories about them growing up in this family of crime and learning their own skill sets. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, really, it's it's Jim and it's his family that are kind of like the only characters who are characters throughout this thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. He was kind of interesting, too. Like, but he was also very kind of two dimensional and just like mustache twirly as a villain. So, mm. yeah. Like, what about you? Agreed. I mean, like, like. I probably would have wanted to follow the twins because even yeah. in the books, they weren't really well developed out. Mm. Like, even as characters in the books, they show up, they're five. In this the span of one book, they are right. like babies, and then they are five, and you learn nothing about them, even in the book. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, because, like, as any parent can tell you, like, little kids basically destroy your life. And... <laughs> It's hard to be a secret agent and then have, you know, twin babies at home. <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, Angelina probably would have been like, fuck this and just smothered them in their sleep. Like, Dude, <laughs> let's right? be honest. Seriously. Uh, yeah, I'm, I was shocked that she got those to five, let alone 20. Did she raise them or was it just kind of the time travel effect? I don't so know. She ended up leaving them with someone else for like oh, that's a what it while. Was. Okay. <laughs> I, <then> mean, <laughs> I mean, speaking as someone that inherited children when they could talk and be reasoned with and occasionally bribed, kids are much easier to raise when you're at that point. There's still a lot of work, but like you have that first couple of years where it's like, you have to put everything on hold to make sure that this tiny thing does not die. <laughs> and it's Oh, thank you. And it's going to drive you bonkers. And the only thing that I can compare that to is, you know, we just got a puppy and so I've spent yeah. several months dealing with this dog who is very needy and you know, I have to get up in the middle of the night and take him out and all that stuff. Years of this? Fuck that. Like, no. 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 <laughs> Absolutely not. not. Will not be me. Man, I ugh, no. <laughs> well, speaking of little tyrants, how did you feel about how Jim went about throwing over the tyrant ruling Paraiso Aki, which was the name of the planet? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. It felt very in keeping with the general vibe of Jim that I remembered. It was in keeping with that vibe where he's this con man relying on tricks and techno wizardry to undermine a rigged political system and then get a good guy in place after he takes over. It felt like something more true to form for him rather than a cross time battle where he's hunting down a Martian warlord. Yeah. You know, and I like the bit where he got, was it blown up or shot? And then he had like this weird kind of like hibernation cocoon that was like healing him and stuff. And I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah. This is all like, this is fun. Like, <laughs> I dug it. Like, it, you know, it was, yeah. It felt very silly. I liked a lot of the stuff they were doing where he was giving a speech and then they had some sort of like emotional manipulation technology built yes. into like the audio system. So yeah. he's alternating between making people really happy and then enraged and then happy again. Yeah, it was fun. It just it felt like that's the, the best word that I can describe this third story is it's just it's fun. Yeah. Well, the book felt more like the, the book felt a little yuckier, I think, in the sense that, like, it felt weird that this person who had nothing to do with this country was coming in and completely upheaving everything. And it felt oh. very like. Yeah, like, there's that too. Cap it felt like America, like, you oh, know, yeah. America world police. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I mean, like, when was the actual novel written? Uh, 82. I mean, yeah. So it's a very 1980s Reagan story. Like, you know, where we were going in and like just shaking shit up in other countries where we had no business to be. Yeah. I have no problem acknowledging how problematic the theme of the story is. I will also say the story itself, the way it's written is fun, but like 
it's all about like propaganda and manipulating the system. And it's like, well, it's okay that I'm doing it because the other guy is way worse. And you're like, mm, yeah, mm, okay. Yeah. Like, and that's mm. the vibe of the book too, where I was like, Ooh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> you know, but again, we're reading this from a perspective of almost 40 years later. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that's something that I often have to, I have to read it with like two different lenses of like, all right, so like, let's look at it from the era when it was created and then look at it right. from, from now. And like from now, yes, there are definitely problematic elements that haven't aged well at the same time from that era. It feels like a very 1980s American story. And the other thing is I would rather see a story like this rather than just like, oh, we're sending in the army to liberate these people who are oppressed. No, that's fair. That is fair. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's th There's conflicting emotions about it. Yeah, that's fair. Well, what did you think about the art? Now, we had mentioned that you had the black and white version, mm -hmm. but do you think the color would have changed your experience of the stories? Now, I did send you three pictures to your phone. Yo, cellular oh, cellular phone. Don't keep that in because I sounded like silly. Let me see. Hold on. Cellular uh, phone. There should be three uh -huh. there. Yeah, it just came out. Oh, wow. Is that interesting? Yeah. So Square's art is, is really good and it works really well in black and white because a lot of the backgrounds that they do, a lot of the panels will be like just the characters on an empty field and all that. I really like this. I think it really kind of pops. Yeah. Because some of the stuff, like the warship and stuff like that are doing like, you know, crazy action with the foreground, there was so much detail that it would get lost in the black and white imagery. That's what I was wondering, too, when I had seen some of the panels and doing my research. Also, like, it's weird how, like, Jim really looks like James Coburn in color. And yeah. they made, and they gave him white hair. Also, he looks like a kind of like a skinny badass Santa Claus because he's he got like, a red suit with like white trim and and then he's got the then he's got the James Coburn white hair and he's old that was the biggest thing for me is like I was kind of surprised at how much older Jim looked than what I remembered because in the books that I read he felt like someone who was in kind of like his early 20s like well you were reading the prequels too it sounds like yeah, and so like it, you know, it's just one of those things where I was like, oh, okay, like I, I guess that makes sense, yeah. but it was just kind of funny. Yeah, and like you know, in Asquarius art, unsurprisingly, it reminded me a lot of the 2080 flagship stories of Judge Dredd, mainly in like yeah. how he rendered the characters and the vehicles. They've got that kind of like that chunky look that was really popular in those books during the 70s and 80s, with like you know how they designed a lot of the costumes and stuff, and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he just, I think the weird thing to me was in the black and white books, I'm like, he looks like he's in his, I don't know, 40s based on like the lines on his face and all that. No, he looks like he's in his like 50s or 60s in color. Yeah. Like, yeah. Which is fascinating too. If you stop to think about the time frames for how all this was supposed to roll out, like he's yeah. already, this was like issue one, he's looking like he's in his 50s. And then yeah. he somehow ages, well, he may not have aged the five years, but he ages at least long enough to have children so that's at least a couple to a few years yeah and then he ages however many 20 something years when the kids are oldest in that last one yeah i don't know like because you know so we're talking of a span of about 20 years like yeah theoretically 20 25 years yeah yeah just kind of interesting i don't know oh free oh my gosh we're boring mike everyone oh god well, Sorry, you know what? It I'm sounds just... like we may need to wrap up this discussion. Mike is just, <laughs> we're losing him. Clear. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just mean, I... look, we're recording this way earlier on a Saturday than I would want to. I have a tattoo appointment and I made Mike record way, way early so I could go to my tattoo appointment this afternoon. So thank you for that. I'm going to be reading <laughs> comics while getting inked. Good. Well, so that is our discussion on the stainless steel rat. What do you say we wiggle on over to our brain wrinkles? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we've reached brain wrinkles, which are that one thing, comics or comics adjacent, that we just cannot get out of our thick little skulls. Mike, 
What is it for you? What is in your thick skull that just needs to wiggle free? <laughs> so, uh, did you know that the Dollar Tree has comics? <laughs> only because you told me yesterday via messenger. That's the only reason I know. Yeah, That's wild. Sarah and I went to get takeout last night, and so we were killing a little time at the Dollar Tree around the corner. And as we're walking through the aisles, I came across this G.I. Joe knockoff brand called Final Faction. And I was like, oh, okay, haha, that's cute. I'm like, mm. and then like right further down the aisle, they have a comic book. <laughs> they produced a comic book and it turns out. So first of all, this comic book comes polybagged. So I had to buy two. Oh my God. One to oh, read of course you did. I knew you were freaking going to say that. <laughs> and then this is, I learned from our friend Dottie on Twitter. This is a whole brand created specifically for the Dollar Tree, complete with like what? complete with like kind of like Dollar Tree level YouTube animated videos. Holy shit. It's weird, it's funny. I'm very excited to read this today. It turns out the toys are also like really popular with kit bashers, the people who will like sit there and like make custom figures and all that because they have Oh. So the character designs are all kind of fun. But they also have put out like a ton of accessories, like, you know, extra weapons and and gear and stuff like that. It's really fascinating. We may have to do an episode about this, like as a deep dive at some point. I would love, love to get some people from either the comic or Dollar Tree on that episode. Oh, that'd be cool. So what I'm what I'm hearing is I need to start collecting the Dollar Tree comics. It turns out there's only okay. one. It's very easy to find. Oh. You can actually... <laughs> Okay, perfect. <laughs> How achievable. <laughs> yeah. You can actually, you can order it from their website if you want. They they sell like packs of 30 or something like that. What? Jesus. Yeah. It's just like, of just this one comic. Um, But yeah, I am very curious about this brand now, and I think this could be a lot of fun to cover. That's fun. That yeah. is fun. So anyway, what about you? I have been thinking about art as it kind of circles social media Mm. and artists kind of having to find new ways to get their kind of name out there or their art or their writing or their whatever they're making. People are having to find new ways to creatively find an audience, basically. Mm -hmm. And social media, of course, is doing that in a huge way for people. I love seeing creators on TikTok. Like I I slam so hard on that ad button when I see creators, especially if there are people of color, especially if they're indigenous artists or people who have a, a new and different style I've never seen before. But there are so many people that just are kind of existing out there with not a huge audience, but they're doing some phenomenal work. Oh, yeah. We had a lot of those videos on TikTok that are just really cool to watch. Like Sarah has a really kick-ass account on TikTok, which you can see yeah. her, her illustration and the process of how it builds up. It's really cool. Like I love all mm-hmm. that stuff. I do too. So, and I, the other reason I like it too, is it gives viewers another way to think about art. There are so many people doing so many creative things that it's a really good avenue to start thinking outside the box for yourself too. like, oh, this person did this thing that I didn't even think was possible. Yeah. Like there are these cool paintings that people are doing on panes of glass and they're layering the panes of glass to make a 3D image. Oh, yeah. So it's like an animation cell. It's yeah, or, so I mean, cool. Well, yeah, we, we saw last night you ordered something. It was like a hat. And then it yeah. came with a bunch of cool stickers, too. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. And that was a TikTok find, right? Yeah, I found that on TikTok. So, yeah, I think it's really neat that we have a better way for smaller artists to start getting their work out there. And I don't feel like prior to, you know, prior to the Internet, we didn't really have a way for people yeah. to get their work out there if they weren't discovered in some way. Yeah. and I mean. We're starting to step up our presence on TikTok a little. We we need to get better about it, but but everybody go follow I, us on TikTok. I'm really bad about posting TikTok videos, but you know what, everyone? I'm going to have a lot of time here soon, <laughs> so <laughs> <Yeah>. I will. 
I will be posting more TikToks and more content for us. So I still have not posted that video of the East Bay Comic Con because I have been mentally dead to this world. So it'll come up. It's just going to be a very, very later post. So (laughs) it's fine. All right, everyone. Well, that was our episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Are we actually doing the Nicieza? interview Mm -hmm. a couple weeks from now okay so we promise we promise in two weeks you can hear an interview with us and fabian nicieza and it was awesome i know we keep talking about it but i promise you it will be in two weeks (laughs) yeah but until then we will see you in the stacks Thanks for listening to 10 Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan MacDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who's at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TenCentTakes.com or shoot an email to TenCentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is TenCentTakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. Oh. Rappity rap. <laughs>